Welcome to Valley Real Life, 11 o'clock. How are we doing? Oh yeah, you are fired up. You know, it's the most sleepy service usually, but you're fired up today. I'm excited that you're here. I need your energy because life never goes exactly as planned, does it? It really doesn't. Yeah, as much as, uh, how many of you guys are more type A planners like myself? You know, and it isn't frustrating when you're like, okay, I had this planned out, but it didn't go that direction. In fact, I asked on social media, when were some times that you had situations that uh, went hilariously wrong? Uh, and so here was the first one. Uh, Carrie said, when we planned our third child, and God thought it'd be hilarious to give us identical twins. <laughs> yeah, somebody's laughing. Uh, Chris wrote my absolute favorite. <laughs> I had a blind date once who walked into the restaurant where I was seated. She looked at me, and then she turned around and got back into her car. <laughs> That's not bad. And then he writes, oh, I married this girl three years later. <laughs> nice work, Chris. I don't know how that happened. Uh, Jenna, for those of your parents, thought it'd be fun to take her kids Christmas shopping. My seven-year-old ended up throwing up in Target, then all over the back of my car while I was driving home. I listened to wave after wave of vomit happening in the back seat with nowhere to pull over and nothing to catch it. So I just rolled down my windows and blasted Christmas music and tried not to think about it until I got home. <laughs> There's the solution. You know, just ignore the problem, turn up the music, and you are good. This past January 7th, uh, I was dead asleep, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning. And instantly I woke up. You ever had those moments where you're just like, okay, something is wrong. And all I heard was drip, drip, drip. Now, it had snowed, you know, on the outside, but it was definitely dripping on the inside, and I turned on the light because I wanted to know where that was coming from because it was obviously from inside my bedroom and found out it was between my bedroom wall and my living room. And so being the non-handyman that I am, I uh, grabbed the sheetrock and I ripped it off with my bare hands because I don't own tools that would do it better for me, and uh, I began to try to take care of it in the best non-handyman way that I possibly could. I was glad my wife was out of town so she didn't see not only this embarrassment, but also like panic and not knowing what to do. So what I decided to do was since it's two o'clock in the morning and I know how much you guys love me, I took a video and sent it to seven of you hoping for a plea for help. So I wanna show you what this video was that I sent. So go ahead and check this out now. All right, what's happening you know, right now, you can see it's starting to expand. So you got two on this side, but then it's just getting worse here. So you can see that. And then it's getting really bad here. And then uh, against the wall, you can see this is what I don't have to do. It's against the wall. It's now got like a little river. I mean, it's not like a river, a little, you know, I just don't know how to stop or just even catch that. And then you got, you know, some here. And this is what I'm doing now here. I've got bucket, bucket, and a bucket, you know, bucket is what I've got. But uh, with the wall, it's just, uh, there's just so much. So don't know what to do about that. All right, bye. <laughs> yeah, that's your pastor and his skill set. Absolutely, for certain. And thank you, all seven of you, for not responding for four hours while I figured out what in the world. And yes, that was a popcorn bowl at the end. I didn't know what, I running out of buckets, you know. So again, life never goes exactly as planned. Do I even need to mention March of 2020? You had plans, you had work, you had school, and all of a sudden it was like, nope, that's not gonna happen anymore. And you had vacations, you had all these things that planned, and so what did you do? You learned, you know, how this dreaded word called pivot. 
And we understand that there's going to be these times in our lives where we're going to experience what we're calling a plot twist. Like you're headed in a certain direction and all of a sudden there is a twist in the life schedule and the plans that creates for a different opportunity. And I know we've had a little bit of fun, but in the reality, there's still been some pain. If you look in the past of your lives, maybe you tried out for a team, sports team, and you didn't make it. You know, that was pretty painful. Maybe you, you know, finally found that dream job and you were passed over. Maybe you had the dream job and you got fired. Uh, maybe you went to the altar and said, I do until the rest of my life. And then later on, somebody said, I don't, I want a divorce. Uh, maybe you've gone through financial ups and downs to the economy. Maybe you've had some dreams that have never come to fruition. Maybe you've had rejection from family members. Maybe you've gone through some sort of addictions. All of these are different kinds of plot twists that we can experience in our real lives and many, many more. The key is, how do we respond when it doesn't go our way? How do we respond when things get upended. And so what we're going to do over the next six weeks is we're going to look at an Old Testament character named Joseph. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, this is not Mary's husband. He's in the Old Testament, this guy named Joseph the Old Testament, and he's mentioned more than any other character in our entire Old Testament with the exception of Moses. So he's a pretty prominent guy. But here's what I can tell you is that every time he, think, he thought he had a plan, every time he had a place to go, all of a sudden things changed on him. There was a plot twist. And yet he learned some things along the way that I hope that God can teach us as we go through our own lives as well. So let's start with the first curveball that comes to all of our ways that we cannot control, and that is your birth, specifically the family of origin, the family that you're born into. You and I have zero control over that, and yet what's weirdly encouraging is as part of our families, all of us come from dysfunctional families. All of us do. In fact, Britannica defines dysfunction as this, the condition of having poor and unhealthy behaviors and attitudes within a group of people. So think about your childhood. Think about the behaviors and the attitudes that would have represented dysfunction. And also think about yourself. Have you provided any bad attitude or behavior that has contributed negatively to somebody else? If so, can you meet with me? Raise your hands. Okay, if you're not raising your hand, you are really dysfunctional, and we have different conversations on that. But we all, we're all in dysfunction. The Bible calls that a product or consequence of sin. That's what it calls it. We all have an experience, sinful or dysfunctional attitudes or behaviors from our family, or we've contributed to them in our immediate family. Now, here's where the difference is. The degree of that dysfunction can vary. That's why you say, that, well, this family is normal. Well, no, it's still dysfunctional. It's just more normal than what other dysfunctional families are going through. Let me give you a practical example in our own family. You can see just the different levels and ranges of dysfunction. For example, I grew up you know, in a house. My parents were married for 40 years. I'm a pastor's kid. And let's just say we had some dysfunctions in how we communicate with one another. We had some dysfunctions in how we handled anxiety. My wife grew up in a divorced family. So there's different kinds of dysfunction trying to grow up and with a single mom trying to take care of everything. My daughter, Angelique, grew up in a neglected, abused home where her mom was a prostitute and her biological dad was an alcoholic who died of alcohol poisoning. And my boys have me as their father. Okay? So dysfunction. I'm just saying, in our own family, you can see all these different levels and degrees you know, of dysfunction and the impact that that has in our lives. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the dysfunction in Joseph's life and see if we can draw any parallels. But in order to understand Joseph's life, you've got to understand his family. So I'm going to back us up a bit. And for those of you uh, who might be familiar with some of the story, I think your eyes are going to be reopened to how real the Bible is in our Old Testaments. So let me start with this. Joseph's dad is Jacob. Now, Jacob means heel grabber, literally trickster, scoundrel, and deceiver. And he lives out his name. He deceives his brother Esau out of his birthright and deceives his brother out of the blessing that he was supposed to get from his father, Isaac. Give you an idea, Isaac's father is Abraham. So Joseph is the great, great grandson of Abraham. Jacob, then in fleeing for his life from Esau, falls in love with a woman named Rachel. And this is where the story gets dysfunctional. Genesis 29, 20, Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Now, for those of you romantics, you're thinking about, man, how strong can someone's love be to be able to care for and work for seven years? Others of you are like, this is really weird. He bought a woman. And so we want to unpack this a little bit because you need to understand context to understand what's really happening here. In that day and age, what would take place is arranged marriages. So arranged marriages would happen. And what would happen is if, with, if the woman had to leave her family because she was actually contributing and always, if you were a loving family, she would always have a say in whether or not the arranged marriage would take place. But secondly, understand that survival is most important. So if you lose a contributing member to your family, one that's gonna help take care of things, you know, to actually help provide for the family's health and well-being, there needed to be compensation or else the family could suffer some economic disaster. And so there would be a price that would be given based on how many kids the person had and what's taking place. And so that's why compensation was given because then the bride would actually go not only live with the groom, but usually the groom's family in a different area and be a contributing member to the entire family, not just immediate family, if that makes sense. Second thing is if you're a loving father, one of the most important things that you want for your daughter is for her to be taken care of. How do you know she's going to be taken care of unless the bride or the, the, the groom-to-be can prove that he can financially take care of his bride? So there's always this opportunity to say, look, I am going to give you what you're going to be lost, but also it's going to prove to you that I'm willing to take care of your daughter. So it's not this first. I know the Bible, we go quick. You know, well, you just worked seven years to pay for Rachel. You're like, ooh, that's just weird. Just understand there's always context behind that, and there's, there's something more for us to learn. Okay, the other thing I want to mention to you right now is that if you didn't have a child, it was looked at as a dishonor, but also a livelihood, you know, and a family line that would be stopped if you were unable to have kids. So it was one of the worst things back then in that society. Because with that being the backdrop, let's keep going. Verse 21. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Now again, pretty brutal. Just like, wow, Bible just cuts right to the chase. There's more to it than that. Yes, it's been seven years. We get it. You know, uh, but Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. You can't have a wedding feast without a wedding. So understand that's not mentioned in the Bible, but it means that there is a wedding that's taking place. It is honoring and all of that kind of stuff. But that night, when it was dark, Laban took Leah, 
Who is Leah? Not princess. Leah is Rachel's older sister to Jacob, and he slept with her. How much did Jacob drink that night? We don't know. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. Hold on to that name because that'll be important in just a few moments. Verse 25, but when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? The deceiver just got deceived. It's the same words that his brother Esau actually said to Jacob. And so again, there's this reap what you sow kind of thing that's happening, you know, in, in Jacob's life. Verse 26, it's not our custom to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied, but wait until the bridal week is over. The bridal week, then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. So in the course of 10 days, Jacob goes from wanting to marry Rachel to now he's married Rachel and he has Leah. So now he has two wives. Can't see any issues with that except for in verse 30. So Jacob slept with Rachel too and he loved her much more than Leah. Can you see the dysfunction that's beginning to build? Oh, it gets better or worse. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, the Lord has noticed my misery and now my husband will love me. She then gets pregnant three more times, three more sons named Simeon, Levi, and Judah. So four sons to Leah, Rachel has zero. Do you know what we call this? Jerry Springer. Okay, for some of you who are like, is that a guy who attends a ch our church? You know, for those of you younger, real housewives. Okay, that would be another, you know, uh, example, maybe a little more modern today. Because we're just getting started, folks. Verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister and she pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And he's like, what can I do about this? Bring that up with God. That's not my issue. So Rachel comes up with this brilliant idea. Verse three, take my maid, Bilhah, and sleep with her. She will bear children for me, and through her I can have family too. Now surrogates were common in that day. Again, the family line to continue, but not in one case does Rachel seek God if this is what God is asking her to do. So in order to actually have a surrogate in an honoring way, you'd have to marry the surrogate as well. So now Jacob has three wives, and then verse 9, oh, and, and, and Bilhah becomes pregnant twice. Two sons, one is named Dan, the other is named Neptali. Verse 9, meanwhile, it gets better. Leah realized that she wasn't getting pregnant anymore, so she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So now Jacob has four wives. Do we call this sister wives? We've seen the show. It doesn't work. It's dysfunctional. And Jacob is not off the hook. He could have said no at any point to any of these ladies for a myriad of reasons. Nobody's seeking the Lord when it comes to all this. Now, she you know, gets pregnant, not once, but twice more, and has two sons named Gad and Asher. Then Leah gets pregnant three more times, two more boys, 
and a girl, sons named Issachar and Zebulun, and daughter named Dinah. So for those of you who are trying to keep score, Leah has had six sons and a girl. Zilpah, Leah's maidservant and fellow wife, has two sons. Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant and fellow wife, has two sons. So 10 sons and one girl, and Rachel has none. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my grace, she said, and she named him Joseph. I bet you didn't learn all this at Flannel Graph in Sunday school. They didn't put all this in this way. This is how real the Bible is. It's amazing. Then Rachel has one more child. She gets pregnant and has a second son named Benjamin, but the problem is that she dies in childbirth. And in that day and age, 50% of the wives would actually die in childbirth. Not 50% of pregnancies, but they would have multiple kids. And if you have one, two, three, four, five, six kids, more often than not, one of those kids would cause a hard labor and they didn't have the medical advances they have today, and so you'd lose a child. So Rachel then has passed away. So just as a recap, Joseph's family is born into is just a little dysfunctional. He's got three stepmothers, 10 stepbrothers, one brother and a stepsister, all living at home, all under the same roof. His father, Jacob, though generally godly, embraced polygamy, which is not the way God set it up, which opened the door to jealousy, insecurity, and almost constant conflict amongst his wives. Jacob was so passive as a parent whose lack of involvement and leadership brought incredible pain and confusion to his family. Joseph's brothers took turns being brutal, conniving, openly immoral to one another and to others. Welcome to the family, Joseph. This is what you can't control. And with that being said, it sets us up now for a greater understanding of Genesis 37, verse 1. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. Now you know who they are. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brother was doing. So a little bit of a tattletale. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age and was the firstborn of Rachel. That's me putting that in there for context. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph. A beautiful robe. Didn't he learn about the separation and the issues it was going to cause? But his brothers hated Joseph. Because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. Plot twist number one. We can't control the families we are born into. We can only control or lessen the dysfunctional impact that it has on our lives and that it has on others. Because here's what I want you to hear on this day. You and I can either choose to be the victim or we can be a victor. And it's a perspective shift. The victim believes, because of my upbringing, because of my dysfunctional family, that is the reason that I can't, I won't, or I never will. Now, there are circumstances and consequences based on things that happen in our family lines. And you know this in your family and other people's families. You might have a great-grandfather that had anger issues and 
Their father had anger issues, and their son and their grandson have anger issues, or there's addiction issues, or there's, there's, there's other things that get passed on from one generation to another, and it seems like the Bible confirms that as well. In fact, in, when you're getting the Ten Commandments Moses is getting, one of them is to not worship idols, and then this is what it says in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 5, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. So when we read something like that, you're like, wow, my mistakes, my sins have consequences that can lead to generational impact. But does it? If you read the verse carefully, I hope you didn't miss. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. See, you and I can choose to stop what's taken place in our family line and tree when we choose to accept and follow God's will and God's way. Otherwise, what's taken place in one family dynamic will continue to be passed on from generation to generation, and you've seen all the studies that support that. But there's a way that we can become the victor instead of the victim when it comes to this. In fact, let me illustrate this really well for those of you who have a vision of the Old Testament God as a judge. You know, we're like, man, he's this, that kind of God in our Old Testament. Let me just show you something that you probably have never read before. And my prayer is as you think about your own family and as you think about your own life, may this passage wash over you anew. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 14 to 22, it says this, but suppose that sinful son in turn has a son who sees his father's wickedness and decides against that kind of life. This son refuses to worship idols on the mounts and does not commit adultery. He does not exploit the poor, but instead is fair to debtors and does not rob them. He gives food to the hungry and provides clothing for the needy. He helps the poor, does not lend money at interest, and obeys all my regulations and decrees." Such a person will not die because of his father's sins. He will surely live. But the father will die for his many sins, for being cruel, robbing people, and doing what was clearly wrong amongst his people. What? You ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No. For the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins. And parents, listen up. The parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But... If wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. All their past sins will be forgotten and they will live because of the righteous things that they have done. Isn't that powerful? That's a truth in our Old Testament. And here's what we know based on our New Testament is that there's no amount of things that you can do to make yourself righteous. It's only Christ who makes you righteous by receiving and following him. Then you become righteous in God's sight and you can break whatever dysfunction 
that has taken place or even the dysfunction that you've contributed to in other people's lives. Now, we need to have a realistic understanding of this. I get, so do you, that some of the pains and some of the woundings that has taken place in our lives is going to create some limps emotionally or otherwise in our lives. But we can overcome and still be the people that God has called us to be regardless of the actions of other people. See, the victim allows the pain of the past to hinder their present and their future hope. The victor believes there is a different path and plan that God has for you and for me. Uh, There's a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl who was humiliated, tortured, and dehumanized in the Nazi prison camps who made this discovery. The last of all great human freedoms is to choose one's response to any given set of circumstances. Romans 8, 28 says it this way. And we know that in all things, the good things and the hard things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Notice that there's a condition there. He's working for the good of those who love him, who want to walk a different path and a different plan that he's got laid out for us. See, to be a victor is going to require grace and forgiveness. Maybe starting with yourself. Can you give yourself some grace that comes from God? Can you give yourself some forgiveness? But what about other people who've hurt you? See, allowing God to deal with your past allows you to heal in your present, which gives you hope in your future. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Forgiveness does not mean you're best buds again, because I know one of the reasons that we don't like to forgive, but Dan, this person has done such awful things, and yes, God is going to bring judgment or consequence upon the deeds that have been done, but the person who is suffering now is you, and God wants to set you free from the impact that somebody else has made in your life that you know is impacting now those around you. To break the cycle that's taken place in your life You're going to have to go on a journey of grace and forgiveness. And it's not easy. And it probably won't be just a one-time experience. In fact, I want to encourage you to let other people know, other people in your life group, other people know in your life who you're struggling to forgive, who you're struggling to give grace to that's holding you back from becoming the person that God has called you to be. See, Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, not because the other person deserves it, but based on what Christ has done for us. Second thing I want and need you to hear today is that if you come from a very dysfunctional family or if you created dysfunction in your life or in the lives of others, there can bring a lot of shame. And I want you to know this, your life matters, regardless of what you've done. It matters to God and it matters a whole heck of a lot to a lot of other people. John three sixteen. for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God was willing to lay down his life even in our own dysfunction. That should cause us to pause and to reflect. In Luke 12, what is the price of five sparrows, two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them, and the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're more valuable, God, than all of those. Or my favorite in Psalms 139, 
For you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. God says your life matters. Will you choose to believe that God is real and is at work in and around you? See, Philippians 2.13 says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him, not just again in good times, but in difficult times as well. Can you choose to believe that God is in control when you feel out of it? We're going to discover from Joseph over and over and over how he was like, I am so out of control, but I'm going to continue to choose that my God in which I serve is in control. And you're going to see how that's manifested and played itself out when he could have taken shortcuts, he could have got embittered, he could have held on to resentment. And you're going to see the whole course of his life and say, nope, I'm not going to allow that to be my story. God is in control even when we feel out of it. God is in control of our lives, our nation, you know, in control of our kids. Speaking of kids, parents, remember you're in the long game. It's not the short run. You can find yourself being disappointed in yourself, or you can find yourself being disappointed in some of your kids' response. For those of you who have adult kids who maybe have wandered from the faith, I want you to hold out hope to the long game. No matter what your kids have decided about God, God is never and will never give up on them. Can we trust the long game? And I think you're going to see in Joseph's life that there was a long game at play. Now, not only can we choose to trust and believe in God, but can you choose to believe that you are critically needed in other people's lives? I don't know how to say this any more important, any way than, better than this. You may never get the approval from your earthly father here on earth, but I guarantee you, you've gotten it from your father in heaven. You may never get that affirmation and encouragement from your siblings, your literal brothers and sisters or family members here on earth, but you can get it from your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how God set up the family. In Romans 12, it says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. The devotion is like the devotion of family. Honor one another above yourself. You can be used by God in the life of somebody else when they go through a difficult time. Whether it's something they could control or in the story we're about to see, something that was outside of their control. That they all of a sudden had a plot twist take place in their life. And yet God used a couple people you're gonna see in the course of the story that I hope will move your heart as it did mine of something that happened in our congregation and how one person's life can truly make a difference in someone else's. Go ahead and check out the screen with me now. About two and a half years ago, I started to go back to church and I was determined to make it my main focus. And it was hard because every service I would go to, I would drop Morgan off. Just at the time when Dan would come on stage was the time when the little number would pop up every single week. We went full year before maybe noticing something was a little bit different with Morgan. And it's actually my mom who said, maybe you should go get her screened for some early childhood intervention. She was a sensory seeker. If there was a ketchup bottle, and we weren't around, it would be all over the floor. It would be in the microwave. We couldn't leave her alone, so we were mentally and physically exhausted. Well, and dealing with all the medical stuff on top of it, like finding good providers mm -hmm. and good support, it was hard. I mean, honestly, we were just kind of surviving life for a number of years. Hey, go sit down and do some Play-Doh. You making some cookies? Is that a pear? A peach? It looks like a peach to me. Did you make some? Oh, we don't eat it. Uh-uh. Got to the point where one day, 
I couldn't do it anymore. I was sitting in church um, and this, the number came up and I took a moment and I just prayed. Before I got up, I just said, please God, I can't do this anymore. And there was Morgan standing there, big smile on her face. Morgan was happy, but I was just devastated. And I, I, and I think Tyler saw it in my eyes and I just said to him, I can't do this anymore. And he just looked at me and he said, we're gonna figure this out. I got a call from Trevor the next day that said, hey, Let's all go and have some coffee. He said, we're gonna figure this out. We've got some ideas, we're gonna work with you. I knew in that moment, I was like, this is, this is gonna be okay. That was the start of our journey um, to be what I truly think is a part of the church versus just a visitor to the church. There's a wonderful lady at church, um, Bailey, who was assigned to Morgan, who just became part of the family. Bailey always finds the joy in something. Even if Morgan had the worst day, Bailey finds something joyful to share with us. Walking into church is an absolute joy for me now because People know Morgan's name. Morgan's saying good morning to everybody. She's high-fiving the people at the so door. so excited to be there. We have, we have people in our corner now. We have people that are there to support us. And we can just breathe every week. We come in, we know she's good, we get our coffee, we find our spot and we sit down and we are just there in that moment. And I feel like, like I could live life in all its colors now. And I don't feel so worried about where we're headed as a family. I used to sit there with the ticket on my lap, ready to look up at that number. The ticket is in my back pocket and it never comes out. And there's only one person that matters for that moment, and that's God. And I know that's just the beginning. I know we need to get back into a small group. We need to be more involved. I just can't wait to see what the future holds. Hi, cool. Love it. We're never going to be the perfect church, but as long as we do the best we can to love and to support one another when they have their own plot twists. And some of the things that we've talked about today, I know can evoke some emotion. We've seen it at every single one of our services based on one of two spectrums. As you think about and deal with the things of your past, my prayer is that you would just continue to walk on that journey, have discussions with other people in your life. What does it mean to lay it down? What does it mean to offer forgiveness? What does it mean to offer grace? What does that look like? How do I do that over a period of time? Maybe it's with a life group, maybe it's with a pastor, maybe it's with a counselor. For some of you, it's on the other side. You start thinking about your inadequacies as a parent, as a grandparent, you know, as a person who's involved in some young person's life, and you beat yourself up, and I just pray you would be able to learn what it means to give yourself grace and to give yourself forgiveness you know, in the midst of it all. And so as we close, how will you choose to move forward in your relationship with God or your family, your immediate family? There's opportunities that God has brought you here for a reason. And maybe the biggest reason is for you to be a part of his family. The way you become a part of his family is you put your trust and your hope in him, leading you on a different path and trajectory, no matter what your family lineage has been. God has something better in mind. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today and for the opportunity we have to worship, to love, to connect to you. And I just pray, Father, that you would just lead us of what this looks like in our immediate families. Uh, whether we're you know, um, on one end of the spectrum or another and we all have dysfunction, thank you for your grace and that you still, your mercies are provided new every morning because of your faithfulness. Help us to know what to do with what we've received today. Help us to be encouraged as we're challenged on the way out in the way that you're willing to love and walk this journey with us. Help us to do that with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.